Saracen is a three-time author, restaurateur, and public speaker who grew up in a small city in New Hampshire in the United States. Growing up in kitchens, he learned how to cook from many amazing Western chefs. Each chef would impart the knowledge passed down to them by their mentors. It wasn't until much later in life that he would try his first bite of Indian food. He began learning under an Indian home cook and went on to study with food archaeologists and historians from across India. Welcome, Keith. It's such a pleasure to have you here. It's an honor. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us a little bit about growing up. What did an average meal at home look like for you? Yeah. Um, so an average meal for me. So I just, I just grew up with my mom. I never mm-hmm. met my father. And so we were kind of poor and uh, she would be working quite a bit. So she wasn't a great cook, um, but I'm telling you, she could cook scrambled eggs so good. <laughs> and I, uh, I think that's like my love language food in a lot of ways. Um, so it was very simple, uh, scrambled eggs. I think everyone in, in the West has some sort of version of American chop suey. Um, and so, uh, she had hers, which was very, very basic. Um, so in a lot of ways I learned how to cook out of necessity. And the first book I ever learned how to read was actually a cookbook that my grandmother gave me that was on the top of our refrigerator. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Amazing. I know I'm trying to think of some of the first things that that average. Well, I do know an average home cooked meal was roti, chaval, dal and sabji. And usually we had tuber dal at least three four days a week. So today it remains my most unfavorite food <laughs> because we were having too much of it, but um, we'll get into that a little bit later. So, you know, I, I, I read your first experience with Indian food and it literally made me smile and my mouth water at the same time. <laughs> so can you share that once again for our audience? Sure. I'd love to. I, uh, so I grew up a really picky eater. Um, you know, my, my mom, like I said, wasn't a great cook, but for me, you know, cooking became a necessity and I started my career at 14 in kitchens, uh, where I washed dishes and worked my way up, um, and eventually became a chef and all of those wonderful things. But still to this day, when, you know, I, I remember those moments of her cooking beets by taking them and, you know, from a can, boiling them in water. And so I think my aversion to food started there. Now I had a wonderful friend and his family owned an Indian restaurant. And, uh, during that time he would always be like, Hey, I want to, you know, try this, try this. And I was like, absolutely not. There's no way I'm trying this, it, you know? And I think to me, it, it was just, it was intimidating, you know, cause I didn't like so much stuff. I also know I didn't want to be disrespectful. Um, you know, his family was lovely, but, you know, walking in, I wasn't used to sense like, you know, toasted cumin and, and these beautiful aromas that hit me. And so one day he's like, all right, well, we're playing this video game. And if I, if I beat you, you have to try Indian food. Ah. And best bet I've ever lost. <laughs> he, uh, he, he beat me in the next day. Um, he knew I liked spicy food. And so we walked into this small Indian restaurant in New Hampshire 
And, you know, from the moment I walked in, just the aromas that hit you are just so intoxicating. Mm -hmm. And so I remember being like, okay, this is going to be good. I've got this. Uh, I looked at the menu and it was also intimidating because none of the words I understood, you know, I, you know, I didn't know what words like vindaloo or dal or, or, you know, I, I, I heard of naan before. And these are the things that are very ubiquitous in, um, Western style Indian food. So I ordered chicken vindaloo and I remember the moment, like it was yesterday, the waiter placed, um, placed the dish on there along with just perfect buttery garlic naan. And I dipped that in and I closed my eyes. And if you've ever seen the matrix, it's like when Neo sees the matrix for the first time, all Uh of a sudden he's like, whoa. And I, I I was cooking a lot in my career at that point. I was still young, but to get to that point where I was like, how are they doing this? It was just, it was amazing. So the next day I ended up, um, he said, Hey, you want to go get some spices? I said, sure. Uh, walked into a small Indian grocery store. And at the back of that uh, store was this little old lady who was just uh, like her smile lit up the room. And she saw that I looked like a deer in the headlights. So she said, Hey, do you want to try something? And so she brought out this dish that was in a styrofoam container a little bit. And, you know, we know now it's Suji Subji, but you uh-huh. know, at the time I looked at it and I was like, Oh, this is vegetables. <laughs> Great. Here we go. But it was that <laughs> same reaction. It was, it was so powerful, you know? And I think that that, that moment changed my life dramatically. Um, so yeah, that was my first bite. That's awesome. So, you know, you said about that first bite in the grocery store that there was, quote, the balance of spicy, sweet and sour overcame me. And I smiled again. This made me immediately think of my own roots. Uh, My parents came from the Indian state of Gujarat. Um, We are legendary for putting sweet in everything. So my question is, is that was the woman that you met in the grocery store of Gujarati origin? Absolutely. <laughs> um, and so my favorite dish to this day is a Gujarati dish, undyu. Oh, um, yes. Nice. <laughs> undyu is something that like was the next level for me because she would make it very rarely during like tali. Like she would make a tali and uh, she would be like, oh, I made undyu. And I was, it took me and I still uh, forgive me if I don't pronounce it right. It took me so long to even get close to the pronunciation of it. You're it's doing that well. DH. <laughs> but yeah, I've made it a million times and I, I don't even come close to how good she still makes it. It's the best dish ever. That's amazing. So I, I grew up not exactly liking undhu. And, and it's interesting because a lot of Gujarati foods um, I grew up not liking. And as I alluded to earlier, it was because it was the daily, right? Like when we had pizza or enchiladas, that was like the treat for the week. And so you, you tend not to appreciate what you have a lot of, but it was a trip to India that I took, I think, um, right after I graduated, um, with my bachelor's and I had undu in the traditional way where they took a clay pot and they filled the vegetables and then they covered the top. They turn it upside down. So undu is upside down with you then kind of gives you an idea of why it's up, you know, why it gets its name. They dug a hole in the ground, put the pot inside, built a fire on top. I have never tasted something so amazing. Uh, So it, 
it really kind of sparked my love for the dish because I actually understood not just the process, but also just the effort and why it's not so common. As you said, she doesn't make undu often or didn't make undu often. There's, there's a reason. (laughs) Yeah. That, that story just like I'm smiling ear to ear because it's the thing that I love about that dish is very complicated in the sense that from the name of the dish and how it translates mm-hmm. to knowing that that dish is only created during a certain time of the year during winter, because you need valor, you need sardipapti, you need like these things that, that are quintessential to that dish. And there's a lot that, you know, some people will use pumpkin, some people will do some mm-hmm. different things like that, but it's that, that fall winter vegetable. Right. And I think that, you know, this is something that I've, I've had a lot in my career. I love the idea of seasons. I live in New England. And so we have these beautiful seasons. And so I understand that scarcity breeds obsession. And so when I, it's about to be strawberry season right now, I have them for three weeks, three weeks in the entire year. And I don't eat strawberries until these three weeks. So for me, my brain is going, how do I preserve these seasons? I do the same with undu. I think of that dish all the time as this dish that's seasonal, which means we must respect that dish and understand that this is special. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm glad you brought up seasons because, you know, I grew up in California um, in the Silicon Valley, and we were blessed with some of the most fertile soil uh, this country has seen in terms of cherries, strawberries, peaches. I mean, you name it, but they were only available during certain seasons. So I knew when it was cherry season, we kind of knew when it was strawberry season, quite frankly, I've forgotten. I really Mm. have forgotten. And of course, each state has different seasons. Um, Florida's strawberry season is January, February. Um, What, you know, what do you think as a chef, is there any going backwards on seasons? Because we now have kind of a, a global economy around food and you can have strawberries year round. They don't taste good, but but you can have strawberries year round. Um, Is there a movement in kind of the culinary world uh, towards bringing back an awareness of seasons? Yeah. Wonderful question. I I think that we've seen this a lot in the last 10 years where the farm to table movement has absolutely taken over. I, I started a company um, 10 years ago called the farmer's dinner, where we do dinners on farms all across New England. And when I first started it, the first reporter to ever interview me said, why are you basing a business on a fad? And I said, well, I don't think knowing your farmer is a fad. I think it needs to be a right. And so here we are 10 years later and we've seen so many amazing chefs who are much better than I'll ever be, you know, create these incredible seasonal based menus. And I think that, you know, one of the things that I love deeply about it is, uh, you know, we go into a supermarket now and it's a global season, right? Where like seasons don't really exist anymore. And I, I hate that because for me, I, I want that change. That change brings creativity and, and we know that these things are special. So I, I think that nature hates monocultures. So the more that we plant like in the West, you know, corn, the more that nature tries to eradicate corn through a variety of means. So I don't know what the future looks like, but I do think it's about diversification. 
Hmm. Yeah. And, um, is there, you know, I, I live here in Philadelphia, uh, a very, uh, food driven city and, mm. and we do see a lot of farm to table, uh, What's, what's maybe the biggest limitation? Um, is it, is it lack of creativity or is it expense? Like, or is it a combination of all those things that it, it isn't maybe even more prolific than, um, than what we're, we've seen in the past 10 years? Yeah. It, another great question. Um, a lot of it starts with the fact that farmers and chefs are very similar yet speak a dramatically different language. Mm. So a farmer says, I need to put something in the ground and in 30, 60, 90, 180 plus days, it's going to come to fruition. A chef says, I need to put out 150 plates in the next four hours. Mm. Now understand they both deal with food. They both prize themselves on ingredients. There's a lot of similarities. So I, I think that the issue lies in the minute a chef leaves the restaurant and tries to go to a farm to build a connection, then they're met they're They're not able to put their hands on their food and do all these other things. Right. Mm-hmm. And the minute a farmer leaves the farm to go to try to, to do marketing, there's a million other things on the farm. So it's two ships in the night that are passing together. So in the last 10 years, my whole goal has been to try to bridge that gap to say, Hey, chef, you need to meet this amazing human being and put those people together, which is why we're not farm to table. We bring tables into farms that way. Like we'd get to do it that way. So it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. I love that. I love that. I'm going to shift back a little bit to Indian food um, because we we could talk about food all day. Um, (laughs) But, you know, often what most Americans know as Indian food is a generic North Indian quote unquote food. And maybe in some places that maybe have an increasing diversity, South Indian food, but India's cuisines are not only diverse by region, but um, even within each region, um, food can be, or, or the same undu, for instance, can be different, very different. So is there a particular kind of Indian cuisine that you're drawn to and, and what's the reason for that? Yeah, I, I find myself being drawn to history. To be very honest with you, um, I don't, this isn't my cuisine, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a very important thing to always like acknowledge and put front and center. Mm-hmm. I don't think, you know, I'm not an Indian person. I'm not Indian by descent and it'll never be my cuisine. So when I look at a dish, I start by the history. I'm very blessed and fortunate that one of my gurus is Dr. Kurush Dalal, who's an incredible food archaeologist and historian. And whenever I put out a, a dish or I'm putting out, you know, something for a pop-up series like Atma that I do, I start by saying, hey, Kurush, like, let's look at Rogan Josh for a minute. Um, You know, I know that Rogan Josh here, they use a lot of, in a lot of like kind of quote unquote curry houses as they're referred to as, you know, they'll use red food coloring to get that color. Well, that color actually doesn't come from red food coloring in Rajasthan. That that color comes specifically from Matanya chilies and it comes from, there's, there's a spice that gives it that deep red color. Um, The name escapes me off the top of my head. Um, Um, but it's like those things, I have to look at it historically. And then I look at regionally and more than just state, I think it's important to look at, you look at the Konkan coast, you know, you look at, okay, well, the Konkan coast is definitely going to have a lot of coconut as, you know, because it it can fit there. It, It works there. So I think that's what I do. And then the other thing to add to it real quick is I don't know what Indian food is. 
I cannot tell you what Indian food is. And I've never met a person who can tell me what Indian food is. It's different things to different people, right? I mean, for me, it's been a not just, I can't just say it's Gujarati food, but it's the Gujarati food that my mother learned. And my mother's village um, is kind of in the, in the North East corner of the state where she's 45 kilometers from Rajasthan and equidistant to Madhya Pradesh. So there's influences in, in their food. So we, at being Gujaratis, we eat dalbati, uh, which you've probably heard of. Um, and uh, where my husband, who's from Southern Gujarat, had only been introduced to it because he married into my family and my family made a big deal about, Oh, you're engaged. We need to make Dalbati. And he's like, what is that? You know? <laughs> that that's beautiful. That I, I love, I'm sorry to interrupt. I, no, I have please. Your, that story is so perfect because that to me exemplifies like Indian food cannot be contained. I always say like, people say, well, like I, I do like a lot of fine dining approaches to Indian food. And I always say to people, my job is not to elevate Indian food. It doesn't need elevation. It needs representation. And what you just said represented it so beautifully. So thank you for that point. No, of course. And I actually, to that point also, it evolves, right? It, mm. it not only can be not contained, but it evolves. Uh, broccoli is not something that's native to um, India. However, my mom makes and my mother-in-law makes some of the best broccoli sabji or broccoli shak, as we say in Gujarati, um, not something that they ever grew up with. But when they came to this country in the late 60s uh, or early 60s, rather, there were no Indian grocery stores. So they had to make do with what was available. And so so then they kind of evolved the food, same spices, some of the same uh, techniques, but the food changes. Um, you, you know, you, you you've gone or you've studied. I think you've gone to India, um, or at least have studied with archaeologists and um, this historian Kurush Dalal. What are some of the things that you learned um, about about food in India? I think the things that I learned about the f about food in India is very much what I learn about food in America. And here's the parallel. America has a cultural, I, um, it, it, ha it, it lacks cultural identity. We're a melting pot, right? Excuse me. We're still very much a new nation in a lot of ways. Right. So America doesn't, it, it apart from very small things in the South, it doesn't really have anything that is American. Apple pie is not American, as the adage would say, you know, like the hamburger, the hot dog. A lot of these things have their roots in other cultures that have been around for a lot longer. Interestingly enough, Indian food is very similar. Now, I know that everyone might go, oh, well, no, no, no. And of course, there are things that are indigenous to India. That is not a question. But if we look at the things that are very prevalent in, in terms of food right now, we look at, at just basic subject. Let's look at uh, aloo, you know, uh, potato. Um, potato was not something that was indigenous to India. It was brought here by the Portuguese. Uh, the tomato was brought here by the Portuguese. Murchi or, or uh, chili was brought here by the Portuguese outside of, um, you'll have pockets of it in, I believe, Assam. There was some very, very hot peppers in Assam. Um, uh, uh, gobi or cauliflower 
was brought here by the British. Think of these things that are so appeased were brought here by the British. All of the, it doesn't diminish the, the beauty of the cuisine whatsoever. If anything, it shows me that Indian people and, and folks from the subcontinent, I should say, have taken things that were kind of forced on them in a lot of ways and made the best food on the planet with them. And that is a reoccurring theme that we see in, in the history of the subcontinent. And that to me is one of the most amazing things about the culture. Hmm, interesting. So, uh, you know, speaking of, uh, you know, just the way in which Indians have innovated, taken things. You know, I go, I go back to how I've learned how to cook and, um, it's, it's never measured. Um, it's a fistful of this, a pinch of that. And so is this how you were taught, uh, how to make Indian food and how does that maybe contrast with what you've learned from other chefs? Is that something that maybe is shared amongst the best chefs and, um, what are the, what are the similarities and what are the differences? Yeah, I, I love this question because it it touches on two major points. And here's what they are. The first is you are 100% right um, when it comes to measurements, right? Or lack of measurements. When Indra was first teaching me to cook, um, we would take, she, she did a lot of masoor dal. I love masoor dal. Mm -hmm. And she would make masoor dal. And instead of the tadka kind of going on at last, she would begin with the tadka, which mm. is like something that was very unique and, and still is unique to me. Well, when I would say like, how much ajavan do you put in? She would be like, oh, enough. And I'd be like, well, like, hold on. How do we quantify enough? Right. And I didn't realize that at the time, but she would do these hand, these, these finger movements where she would touch like her thumb to her index finger. And I was like, oh, like, and I, I never picked up on that till much later when I met a wonderful friend named Prabha and she was teaching me a lot about uh, food from Kerala and she'd be like, oh, enough, enough. I started learning that in Tamil or, or Malayamam, I, I forgot which one. I'm really bad at a lot of That's Southern okay. languages. So pardon my, my, uh, my pronunciation here, but there's a phrase called taimanam and it means like to hand flavor. Um, and you see this a lot when you'll see somebody make like large portions of whether it's biryani or something like that, they'll take spices in their hand and they'll kind of throw them in, in the handi. Mm -hmm. And like, so you get these like type of things that the mark of a good chef is that. So it's, it's amazing to see that. Now on the reverse, to answer that question, I grew up with very precise measurements mm -hmm. and in savory side, it's, it's a little bit more loose than pastry in, in a fine dining world, but it's still one teaspoon of this one tablespoon of this. Right. So I think there was a big, big gap for me there. Mm -hmm. But I also see that a lot of older chefs will gatekeep their recipes and say, here's how to do it. And by the end, there's this bag of masala they'll pull out and they'll say, but this dies with me. Oh, wow. I like the word that you use for gatekeeping because I have actually met some aunties that have one secret ingredient that they will not will not share. And I just 
I hope that they're sharing it with someone at least because it would be a shame to lose, um, you know, that flavor. We may not be able to replicate it completely, but sometimes it might be just be that one key ingredient that makes something incredibly smooth or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Now, when you were learning um, how to cook from Inderanti, uh, did she review some of the reasons uh, behind why certain spices are used with vegetables and and how did she explain that to you what were you maybe surprised by yeah the thing that's beautiful about like really getting to the soul of indian cuisine which is really complicated and i'm certainly not the person to explain it but in my journey of it i will say that indira taught me a lot about the medicinal qualities from ayurvedic properties and things of that nature so haldi was a really great example of this you know she's she always said that at first she didn't explain it. She would say tomatoes go in, Haldi goes in. I'm like, okay, like this is, I would try to replicate these early on and I would be like, this is the, I'm missing something like I'm missing these layers. And so as we went on, I would say, well, why, why is Haldi going in then? And she's like, you want Haldi in then because at that, the fat needs to bind to the Haldi to release the properties of it. And so now I think of something like Haldi Dude, which everyone in the West understands is a turmeric latte, yes. um, you know, like, which I'm sure we could rant on. But or golden milk. <laughs> golden milk, yeah. Um, Haldi Dude to me is, is this thing where I, I think about it and I'm like, there's three things that I think are important in Haldi Dude. One, some sort of fat, and we get that through milk. Two, a really good quality Haldi or turmeric. And three, pepper. I think of pepperine and how it needs pepperine to help continue to release those things. Those three things matter so much in Haldi Dude, yet the West doesn't embrace the pepper side because pepper is spicy a lot of times to people. Mm -hmm. So it's those small steps that like, as somebody who studies this, it like kind of like gives me a little quick jab and I'm like, ah, I can imagine how much worse it is from somebody who grew up in the subcontinent. Right, right. No, uh, well, things to rant on. Um, <laughs> non bread. It, it's like saying bread, bread. Uh, chai yeah. tea latte is like saying yeah. tea, tea, tea. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Uh, but uh, we, we, I don't want to go down that line too much, but you know, it, it sometimes just drives me nuts. Um, and I just can't pay like six, $7 for Haldi Dude. I just can't do it. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the, the, the move here real quick is I think yeah. the move is reproach with love, right? Mm-hmm. Like a lot of, like, I don't know so much, like you've probably forgotten more than I'll ever know. And I study this a lot, mm-hmm. you know, but the reality is like, I need correction. But if we do it in a place of anger and resentment and frustration, then we're not helping people inspire to learn the most beautiful cuisine on the planet, which is food from the subcontinent. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that point up. This is something that, you know, at the Hindu American Foundation, outside of even the food context, you know, oftentimes we'll get emails from concerned people in the community that, hey, I saw this really disrespectful appropriation of a goddess and it's on a yoga mat and people are putting their feet all over it. You know, can you do something or, you know, whatever. And 
oftentimes, you know, some people want to just immediately protest. Um, our approach has always been, well, let's look at the intent. Is there an opportunity here to educate? And once they're educated, if they dig their heels in and they're like, no, this is our product, we can do whatever we want. You know, that's where maybe a protest might have have a place. But very often, and I would say more often than not, it's just ignorance, right? And mm-hmm. once they know, they're so apologetic and, and they want to do the right thing. So I, I think that those are the, those are places where, you know, a little bit of discernment goes a long way. Um, and then that actually brings me to my next question, because that's how we came to know about you. And that was through a TikTok response that you had put out um, to Rachel Ray, basically saying that she needed to be, quote, a Ganesha, those elephants with all those arms as she's trying to carry multiple items um, out of the refrigerator on her show. Um, and so, you know, we we saw this and we're like, who is this guy? And then, you know, came upon your website and everything. So, you know, you've learned about, obviously, the cuisine, you've learned about the culture, you've learned about the history and archaeology of food. Um, One, what was the response to your video? Um, Yeah, I so. I never really wanted to do anything on TikTok, to be honest with you. Like yeah. my girlfriend like would scroll through and I, and she'd be like, Oh, you should do something it, that when I was going through, I was going through like food network one day and we were watching it and I saw this and I was like, Oh my God. Like, and it's an older video. I don't think Rachel Ray is a bad human being. I've never met her and I can't judge that. Yes, But I will say that, you know, I grew up uh, with, when, with, with Indra specifically, I'd walk in and it was morning pujas. It was incense. Her father was, was a priest. And so it was very regimented. Um, I would, you know, I, I think the level of respect, honor, and love that I have for that, when I prep food for Atma, which mm-hmm. understand the word Atma has this deep connotation right. that I do not take lightly. I, I do things very differently. It's always prayers that are, are playing as we prep. Mm. And I don't identify as a Hindu, but my deep love and respect for, for what I've learned is passed on. Mm. And I've, I, I've learned so much because of it. So I think to see her do that was like, oh, come on. Like, we have to learn that this isn't okay. And it doesn't mean we need to chastise and cancel culture is a horrible thing, right? I, I just, I think it's terrible. But it's an opportunity for education. And just like you said, which you phrased perfectly, those moments of education, I'm sure she would have been like, oh, like, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to right. offend anyone. Exactly. And that's the, the main, main point. Yeah. Um, in terms of Atma, you mentioned it. Tell us a little bit about that. What is that? Yes. Yeah, so I, I run a pop-up series um, called Atma and I came to the name um, because I, I spent a lot of my career in kind of fine dining and French food and all the, all, all those things. And I would, I would never get to use the knowledge that I had. I'd go home and I'd be learning about Indian food or I'd be taking classes. And I never did that in my, in, in the cuisine. And so when I finally sold my restaurants in 2020, I, I was like, you know, this is the first time that I'm, I'm getting to do something that is the maximum expression of oneself, which is kind of what the Sanskrit would translate to, you know, it's soul for sure. Um, from my understanding. Mm-hmm. And so I think Atamata for me is, is about 
Tarun, who's my business partner, and I getting to really put out the truest essence of who we are and what we want to share with people. And so the food is very much a reflection of Kurush, Indra, uh, my good friend Ragini Kashyap, where we do our podcast more than masala together. Um, it's the mentors that I have. It's the friends that I have. It's the recipes that somebody will send me. You know, somebody will be like, oh, this is my mommy G's recipe. And I'm yeah. like, oh my, like... <laughs> Like I get emotional because it's like, this is, I know how much that means. So yeah, that's, that's where Atma came from. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Um, I just have two more questions for you. Um, yeah. One, the, the second to last is, well, for anyone who loves Indian food, whatever they've tried, um, but is intimidated by its complexity, um, what advice would you give them? Uh, it's going to be a weird answer. Okay. Um, but if you love Indian food, you need to love Indian people. I mean this wholeheartedly because food is one thing, like it nourishes us. It's, it satiates us. It's wonderful. Of course, Indian food is, is packed with flavor, but loving Indian people is also very important. A lot of first culture kids will come here, uh, and, and, you know, our first generation kids will come here. The mom will pack them a lunch and they'll get ridiculed in school. Yes. This is something that is absolute bull. And if you love that food growing up, but you remember doing that when you were younger, we need to help rectify that. Mm. We need to say it's one thing to enjoy the food. It's another to understand this is a deep, rich history of people, culture, cuisine, and they I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt, some of the people who mean the most in my world and have had my back have been people from the Indian subcontinent and they've been there at Devo Baba, right? Like, it's like, it's the, the guest is of God and, yes. you know, and they personify that time and time again. Wow. I love that. Um, and my last question is where can people find you? You mentioned a podcast, um, you mentioned a pop-up, um, if people want to come and try your food, what can they do? Yes. So you can check out atmarestaurant.com um, or go to keithsaracen.com. have all of the links there. Um, and yeah, we do pop-ups all over the New England area. Uh, we do them like once a month. Warning is they sell out massively quick, um, you know, and so we try to accommodate the best we can. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's an amazing honor to be able to serve, you know, food that, that I love so dearly, but be able to help educate and tell a story as well. That's amazing. Well, you've given me a reason to come to New Hampshire then. And <laughs> um, I just really want to thank you for your time, um, for your passion. And, and especially because we're in the, the business or the cause of educating uh, your approach and your humility um, to that approach is is one that um, we hope to see more and more of. So thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Well, that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and leave us a nice five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It's how you can help this show get discovered by more listeners. If you want to help ensure that more of these get made, you can make a donation to HAF at www.indoamerican.org slash donate.